Morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good. <laughs> I always say that, and then I regret afterwards. It's like, anyway. Uh, very good. Good that you're all here. Lovely to see you. This morning, we're continuing in our series in First Corinthians. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, last time we were in this series, Hazel was looking at um, chapter 9, the first half of that. So this morning, we're in chapter 9, in the second half, uh, starting at verse 19. Um, so 9, verse 19 to 27. We're going to need some Bible monitors, and I'm looking at the Turner boys right in front of me. If you guys want to come up, just give them a wee cheer. If you need a Bible, please put your hand in the air. And these guys will deliver it to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, this is our free gift to you. We'd love you to take that away with you. Um, but the words, the verse will come on the screen as well. So while you guys are looking it up, let's just remind ourselves a bit of the background of what's going on in the church in Corinth in this letter that Paul is writing to these guys. So there's a lot of uh, difficulty there. There's disunity in the people. Um, there's sexual immorality, a couple of things. Uh, and also there's this obsession that they have about their rights as Christians. They're adamant about their rights and exercising them, even at the expense um, of other believers being hurt and offended. So an example of this is the right to eat food that's been offered to idols, and that Paul says this is fine to do. You're free in Christ to do that. That's okay. Um, that's fine. Some people agree. Some disagree. They can't really stomach that. Eh? Yeah, quite clever, right? But they can't, they disagree, but the people that think it's okay are eating this food in front of them and are offending them. So Paul is saying, you know what, it's better to lay down your rights. Even though it's okay to eat this food, it's better to lay that stuff down rather than upset other people and, you know, affect their faith. And Paul, uh, in the, the verses we looked at last time with Hazel, um, shows really clearly that he has all these rights as an apostle, you know, the, the right to food, clothing, to be paid, and he submits all those rights. He says, I don't want anything, any of my rights to get in the way of, sp of spreading the gospel. So that's kind of the background of where we are. That's a quick recap. The Corinthians are insistent on keeping their rights, and Paul is saying, just lay them down. So let's read. We're in verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Law of law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Amen. Brilliant, brilliant words from Paul there. And what I want us to do this morning is to hone in on the first four words of that, of that verse that we just read. In verse 19, it says, though I am free 
and wants to focus on that this morning. Paul knows better than anyone the complete freedom uh, that he has in Christ. He's been saved by Jesus. His life has been turned upside down. Um, he was a Pharisee who was like bound by the law, and he was living a life of you know, being bound by sin, but Jesus has set him free from that stuff. He knows the freedom that only Jesus can bring. I don't know about you, but when I heard the, hear the word freedom, there's only one film that comes to mind. Who would like to guess? Yes, Gold Star, whoever said that, Bex Elder. Well done. Braveheart. Braveheart. I love Braveheart. I think it's a great film. I know it's extremely exaggerated. I know it's very Hollywood. I know that Mel Gibson's Scottish accent goes a wee bit around the houses during it and all that stuff. But I love it. The kind of, I'm half Scottish, half English, and the half Scottish side of me kind of goes, and rises to the surface, and I feel all Celtic when I watch it. I love it. I love the bagpipes and the rolling hills and all this kind of stuff. I love it. I love that film. There's one scene in particular that I really love. It's the famous scene, the kind of freedom speech, where William Wallace has got the army in front of him, and they're ready to go. They're scared. They don't want to fight. They're ready to leave. But he gives this amazing speech. He rallies everyone to stand and fight. And there's one line that jumps out to me. He starts reminding them, you know, guys, your lives are short. You only have one chance. Maybe this is your only chance in your whole life to stand up, take your place, and stand for what you believe in. And he says this, you have come today as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? What will you do with that freedom? The fact is, if we've given our lives to Jesus, if we've been saved by him, we're, we're set free, we're loved by him, we're secure in him, we've been given incredible freedom in him. And this morning, what we want to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do with that freedom? What are we going to do with the freedom that Jesus has given to us? What are we going to do with our lives? So this morning, we're going to look at what Paul does, what he chooses to do. Though he is free, how does he use that freedom? What is his life all about? So we're going to look at the two things, I believe, from these verses that he does with his freedom. The first thing he uses his freedom for is to save others. And he does that with a radical humility. Uh, when I was in uni, uh, I don't know if you've ever had a very humbling moment. This was one for me. It was uh, the first few weeks of being at uni, and I decided to take a shower. Um, yep. <laughs> Say no more. Having a shower. And uh, in my flat, my, my flatmate was a bit of a, bit of a prankster. Let's play, play tricks on people. So what he decided to do was go into the, the bathroom. We left it unlocked because we needed to get to sinks and stuff like that. So we, we always left it unlocked. So he comes in and he takes my towel, he takes my clothes, and then he leaves. I'm, I'm you know, washing my hair, no idea. Takes all this stuff and then he comes back in again, takes every single scrap of cloth, fabric, anything he can find that I could use to cover myself with. And then not only does he do that, he goes upstairs and he gets a girl who lives above us in the flat above and says, do you want to come down for a wee tea? You know, just have a wee chat and stuff. She's like, yeah, okay. So she comes down, he sits her in the kitchen in a chair facing directly the door of the bathroom. And I'm there in the shower, no idea, la, 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 la. And I hear her voice, finish my shower, open the shower curtain, I see the room is bare. He's taken every towel, every piece of clothing. What am I going to do? This is bad. I don't know this girl very well. This is a very awkward moment. And I'm looking, looking desperately at the room. And in the corner, I see the ironing board. 
And so what I do is I go to the ironing board and I take the ironing board cover off and then try and stretch it and just kind of try and walk out like that. I'm like, hello, good to, good to see you, and just kind of shuffle into my room, totally embarrassed, totally awkward. Now that, that story maybe is a little bit more about embarrassment than real humility, but the humility, <laughs> the humility that Paul displays here is on another level. It's incredible humility. Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. On his mission to spread the gospel to people everywhere, he doesn't just see himself as kind of a a preacher, a wise kind of teacher, but he actually considers himself to be like a slave to the people that he's trying to reach, to be a slave to them. Paul sets out with this radical humility. It doesn't seem particularly logical, does it? Paul is talking about his freedom, then it's almost straight away saying, no, I'm a slave actually. Slave is a really, really strong word for Paul to use. You know, it's quite a big deal that he would say that. He was a free man, he was a Roman citizen, and that had rights and privileges. He was a respected apostle, and the Corinthians would have expected him to act with a certain kind of decorum and a a sense of composure. But Paul just throws all that out the window and says, no, that's rubbish. I'm like a slave. He wants to show these guys that those things aren't important and to highlight that his life is about the humble service of others so that they can believe in Jesus too. So the Corinthians at this point must be absolutely baffled because remember, these are the people, like we said at the beginning, that are obsessed with their rights, their freedoms, what they get to do. And right from the off, Paul says, I'm choosing slavery to the lost so that they might be slaves. And the Corinthians know as well as us, a slave doesn't have rights, doesn't have freedoms. So this is a shocking thing for them to hear, actually. And what Paul is trying to do is trying to wake the Corinthians up from their kind of, you know, cozy, self-centered bubble of worrying about their rights and their freedoms. And he's trying to drag them away from focusing on those things and building their lives around things that ultimately don't matter, that don't make a difference. Yeah, to focus their energy on the wrong thing, and he wants to remind them of their call to save the lost. He wants them to understand the freedoms and rights they have aren't the most important thing. In fact, they're something that the Corinthians, like Paul, need to surrender, need to surrender them. Galatians 5.13 says this, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. In our freedom, we're supposed to be serving one another in absolute love. And Jesus is our ultimate example of this, isn't he? You know, time and time again in the Gospels, he says things like, the last shall be first, and whoever wants to be the greatest among you must make themselves the least. And the Corinthians believed Paul should claim his rights and live in a way befitting a great apostle, whereas he followed Jesus' way of radical humility putting himself in the position of a slave, almost like Jesus getting down and washing the disciples' feet. That's the posture that Paul has. Um, One of our mission partners uh, in Sri Lanka is a couple called Leslie and Shanti Matthews, and I got to go to Sri Lanka a few years ago now. And when we're talking about people who live with radical humility, Leslie and Shanti are the people that come to my mind. You know, they have planted, you know, dozens of churches. They've seen thousands of people in Sri Lanka come to know God. And Leslie is kind of at the head almost of this network of just incredible stuff happening. 
And to look at him, you wouldn't know it because he's just such a, he's just a kind of a small guy and, you know, kind of, you know, simply dressed and kind of, you know, he's just really, really humble. But there's something about him that, you know, you'd think he'd be kind of like unapproachable maybe or, you know, a bit, a bit kind of sure of himself. But he's such a servant-hearted man and such a man that you can see God's humility shining through. He is someone who lives a life of complete service. And he's such an inspiration, actually. If you ever get a chance to meet him, definitely do. But Paul is calling us to do the same, to live lives that are humble, to surrender our freedom and take up the life of a slave for others, to not let our pride rule, but be sacrificial. It's a costly thing, but it's worth it. Again, Jesus is our ultimate example. Matthew 20, I came to serve, not to be served, and to give my life as a ransom for all. So we're not called to be servants of our own desires, you know, what we want, when we want it. Instead, we're to serve other people first and put them first in sacrificial, radical humility. So let's ask ourselves, God, how can I serve others? How can I serve those who don't know you? How can I humble myself and do this in a sacrificial and radical way to communicate your love in a real way towards them? So that's Paul's first kind of thing that he does. He surrenders his freedom to save others and shows radical humility to them. But he also does it on their terms. Verse 22 says, I become all things to all people. I'm two months into married life. Woo! Two months on Friday. A little uh, milestone. Very good. Uh, ah, it's been really fun so far. You'll be pleased to know. Uh, <laughs> been good. Um, but... I started the dreaded DIY the other day. And, you know, traditionally, this is the role that maybe the guy would handle. And I was like, I'd, you know, I don't want to disappoint. I want Hazel to think that I can do this, that I'm capable of, like, tackling any project and stuff. I want to, like, be very, very competent. Not really done a lot of DIY. And it was hilarious because what happened was things went a little bit wrong. And then Hazel would kind of question it, and I would I'd find myself doing the thing that like my dad would always do and other guys tend to do. You just kind of blag it, and you're like, oh, well, you know, the bearings on that thing. I mean, like, you could see the cracks, and it was going to give it, you know. And if, you know, you just kind of say all this stuff, and I was like, well, where did that come from? But anyway, uh, other than, you know, a few minor mishaps, it went well. It went okay. I got to use a power drill, which was very exciting to me, and I was drilling holes in the outside of... Uh, our house uh, to like screw this this thing and to use the, these wee screws and there was lots of different drill bits and they looked pretty much the same size and I soon discovered that if you didn't use the bit that was exactly right exactly the right size the screw would either fall straight out or it wouldn't fit in at all and I know that's a very obvious thing to say like well done Dave you got there in the end but <laughs> the advantage I guess of having this drill and having all these different drill bits meant that this drill could make a hole that would fit perfectly for pretty much any screw. And I want to use that as a bit of a picture of what Paul is doing here, where he says, I have become all things to all people. He can go to all these different people groups that we listed, uh, Jews, people under the law, people not under the law, weak people. He can go to all these different people and communicate Jesus to them in a way that is on their level. And it's almost like Paul has a tool belt full of all these different drill bits, all these different sizes of drill bit that he can use for the different sized screws. 
He spent his time learning uh, the different ways of these different groups and how they think so that they can grasp what the gospel really is and what it's about. And he's desperate to share the gospel by all possible means, using all kinds of drill bits for the right people. And we might think, great, good for Paul. That's, that's really nice to hear. But sometimes we can not look at ourselves in the same light. We might look at ourselves as maybe being just having one drill bit uh, you know, that we're called to maybe witness and, and tell the people who are like us about Jesus. That those are the people we're supposed to go to. Um, I know I definitely thought along these lines uh, when I was in uni. You know, if I ever spoke to another student about Jesus, even though sometimes it was a bit scary and it was kind of stepping out of my comfort zone and all that kind of stuff, like, it was okay ultimately because I knew what they were like. You know, we probably had a similar sense of humor. We are a similar kind of age and all that stuff. But the thought of me going and speaking to one of my lecturers about Jesus, that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's like, ooh, I don't know about that. That's pretty terrifying. And you know what? So often we can box ourselves in. We can see ourselves as maybe having one drill bit, that we're called to those who are the same type as us, if you like, who think along the same lines, maybe they have the same, I don't know, political views, a similar standard of living, same life stage of us. And of course, of course, God wants us to go to these people. These people absolutely need Jesus, and he's calling us to do that. So don't hear, don't do that, because we absolutely need to. But God's mission statement to us is a lot bigger than that. It's a lot bigger than just the people who are like us. He's calling us to make disciples of the world, and his heart is that no one misses out on hearing what Jesus has done and who he is. He's desperate to spread the word, and he wants to use us to do it. So we're not called to be a one-bit drill. We're not called to speak to one people group, but we're called to kind of cast our nets wide, if you like. And like it says in uh, the Gospels, go out into deep water and get a big catch of fish. We're not supposed to stay where it's shallow and safe and familiar. So Paul goes out, and he meets people on their terms, in their territory, And he's not rigid in his approach and his style. Um, And he isn't adamant about the way things are done. Because if there's anything that's going to block people, Paul just drops it. And it blocks them from hearing about Jesus. He says, no, I don't want it. We're called to lay down our preferences. And for us, that might mean going to people who are very different to us. Who think differently from us. Who we wouldn't naturally gel with. Where it might feel a little bit awkward at times. Paul is willing to do everything in anything to see people come to know Jesus. He's willing to like stand alongside them and journey with them in relationship and relate to those who are different from himself. But maybe some of us today feel like a, like a no-bit drill, if there is such a thing, that when it comes to evangelism, it just feels like we can't do it or we won't do it. It can be so easy when we talk about this stuff, when we talk about sharing Jesus, for our, our faces to drop and for us to feel discouraged, to focus maybe on what we haven't done, to look at Paul's words and the testimonies we hear from other people and feel really small and incapable in comparison. We can leave feeling a sense of guilt or shame about that stuff, but do you know what? That isn't what God wants. We don't have a God who delights in belittling us and making us feel small and incapable. We have the opposite. We have a God who loves to build us up. We have a God who loves to encourage and equip us and give us spirits of boldness to go out and speak about him. 
We may feel completely unequipped on our own, but the truth is we are actually. We are unequipped on our own. Even Paul said when he first came to to Corinth, he came in great fear and trembling, like he was terrified to be there. And the encouraging thing about our wee drill analogy is that on its own, a drill can't do anything. A drill is an inanimate object, basically. The drill needs things. It needs the bits, it needs power, and it needs someone to hold it. It needs someone to guide it. We need to ask God to equip us with the bits that we're going to need to reach the people he's sending us to. We need to ask him to, for the Holy Spirit to come and fill us so that through his power, he can use us. And we need, to ask, we need to trust in God and know that his hands are holding us and he's guiding us to where we want to go. God promises to go with us. And if we're still feeling discouraged at this stage, let's read what Paul says next. He says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I find that so encouraging. Paul is giving his all, but he's not naive. He knows that not everyone is going to come to know Jesus, but he's not discouraged either. He believes it's worth it even if only some come to know Jesus. I'm sure you guys have well, many of you probably have heard the classic sermon illustration at this point of the, uh, the man who's walking on the beach and then all the starfish are washed on the shore. Have you guys heard that? Some of you have, some of you haven't. So I do a wee recap. So this guy's walking on the beach and uh, there's starfish everywhere. They're, they're drying out, they're dying. And there's a kid on his own who's like picking up a starfish and like chucking it. But like there's thousands of starfish on this beach. And that one starfish, it's just one drop in the ocean. Uh, anyway, uh, so this kid is like throw it, just picking up a starfish, going to another one, throwing it in the ocean, trying to save them. And this man is watching this kid and he, he kind of shouts like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? It's not making a difference. And then at this point, the boy turns to him and says, it made a difference to that one. It made a difference to that one. And it's a great story. It's a great illustration of um, how God, uh, how, how he, I guess, kind of like chases after the one and kind of how important it is to do that. But when I heard that story as a kid, I kind of missed the point of that. And all I, all I kind of saw was, was the character of this boy who against all odds was trying to save the starfish. You know, no one else cared, but he was like, no, I'm out there. I'm going to save the starfish. And uh, I thought, what, what a noble boy. What a noble boy. And I would sit and I would, I would think and I would fantasize about myself being that boy, being the brave boy, throwing the starfish in. I thought, that's, oh, I'd love, what would I do in that situation? How would I react? And uh, one day we're on a family holiday and my chance arrives. We go onto the beach and the beach is covered with thousands and thousands of jellyfish. Not quite starfish, but, you know, I'll work with what I've got, and I'm very excited. I'm like, here's the moment, here's the moment. So in my head, I'm like, I'm going to somehow get this jellyfish in, and then people are going to go, stop, stop, what are you doing? There's thousands. And I'm going to turn to them and go, it made a difference to that one. And then they're going to go, what a noble boy. Wow, what such character. So I'm really excited. So all my family are like, oh, this is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, terrible. Inside, I'm like, yes, come on. So I go up to my first jellyfish, and there it is. And uh, I immediately encounter some difficulty because you can't touch jellyfish. So I'm like, already the starfish boy had it easier. But I'm not defeated. So I get a stick, and I'm like, I'll try and... I don't know, like maybe nudge it toward, no, that's not making any difference. I try and kind of get my foot and kind of like guide it in like that. No, it's, it's not doing anything. I have a think and I think, oh, I know what I'm going to do. 
I have an idea. So what I do is I get my foot and I kind of like dig a little hole just next to the jellyfish like that. And I kind of burrow my foot in like that. So it's nestled underneath the jellyfish. And then I take my foot and I flick the jellyfish into the ocean. And then it's, as I do this, it's almost like everything goes in slow motion. And you just see this jellyfish flying. Everyone's kind of looking at it like that. In my mind, I'm like, this is great. This is my moment. This is perfect. But to my absolute horror, as the jellyfish is wobbling, what happens is it actually starts to split in two. And then what happens is the jellyfish lands, splash, splash, two jellyfish now. I've murdered the jellyfish. And I feel terrible. I feel absolutely awful. I've got so involved in my story, I don't know where I am in my notes. <laughs> I feel sick to my stomach. And every time after then I look at a jellyfish, I just have that moment of like, I'm never going near a jellyfish again. This is horrible. And I think sometimes evangelism can feel just like that. It can feel just like that. Let me explain. I can think of, I don't mean you speak to people about Jesus and they split in half. That would be weird. But what I'm saying is I can think of times in the past where I've tried to tell someone about Jesus and it's felt like an absolute disaster. I thought in my head it was going to be this like amazing moment and I've stepped in, I've psyched myself up for it and it's just been a really weird kind of hit and run type conversation where I've kind of said something like, Jesus loves you, and then run away really uncomfortably, just absolutely bolted, not really knowing what I was doing. A bit like with the jellyfish, it's like I've went to this person and dug a hole near their feet and then tried to get them off balance so I could just flick them into the kingdom like that and see if it would work, but it's not happened and I've come away feeling discouraged feeling a bit useless. And it's that kind of thing, like going back to jellyfish, where you think, God, I don't want to do that again. I remember what it was like last time. I don't want to do that again. And we put so much pressure on ourselves to do it. You know, I had thoughts like thinking, I'm a terrible Christian if I don't do this. God is going to be mad at me if I don't do this. I need to do it. So I do that thing of running up from a distance and saying something a little bit weird in an unnatural way and running away again and then going, okay, I've done it for a wee while. That, maybe that'll buy me a couple of months or something before I need to do it again. But do you know what? The model that Paul uses is nothing like that. The model that Paul uses is that he comes alongside people. He meets them where they're at on their terms. And we're called to be like that, open and relational and sharing our lives and sharing what Jesus has done in us, to be involved in people's lives. Paul knows that only some will be saved. And you know, sometimes there's such a fear we have of what if it goes wrong? What if this is completely ineffective? What if I'm making a fool of myself? What, what if it's awkward and weird? Paul says, I've become all things to all people. And I think for us, it's okay for us to include in that for ourselves. I'll be uncomfortable. I'll have awkward conversations at times. I'll maybe feel incapable. That's okay. That's okay. It's okay that only some will be saved. We need to remember that if we go out and speak to a hundred people about Jesus and only one turns to him, that's amazing. That is so amazing. Jesus left the 99 sheep to go after the one. That is God's heart. And we need to remember that that's a good thing. We're not going to get it right all the time. And for me, that is such an encouragement. At the end of the day, I'm just a drill. You're just a drill in God's hands. It's him. He's the one who saves people. He's the master builder. He's the, the craftsman. And we're just in his hands. And we're called to go and meet people on their terms. 
So not, no matter how incapable uh, you feel or capable you feel, God wants to use you and he can use you. As it says in 2 Corinthians, my power is made perfect in weakness. So let's be like Paul. Let's not stay in the place of fear and trembling, but let's say, God, even though I don't know what I'm doing 100% of the time, and this is a bit scary, use me anyway, God. Use me anyway. Equip me to tell more and more people about you so that some might come to know you, that they might be saved. God is desperate to do this. And we're so blessed in our church that we see across our sites pretty much weekly people coming to know Jesus. It's amazing. But God wants to do so much more. He wants to use us. We're not to come away from this feeling guilty. We're not to come away you know, feeling bad. But we're not to shy away from feeling challenged about it either. If this is something God is highlighting where you want to ask for fresh help and power from him, then do that. Bring it to him. Ask him to use you. Ask him to fill you with his love to go after the one sheep. So Paul uses his freedom to save others with radical humility on their terms so that he might save some. And finally, very quickly, Paul uses his freedom to run after Jesus. He runs after Jesus and his eyes are fixed on the prize. I don't know if anyone's heard the story of uh, Derek Redmond. Um, some of you might have heard he was a runner uh, he ran in the 92 Olympics in Barcelona, I think, uh, in the 400 meters. And uh, he was a British guy, and he, 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 starts, he starts his run, he starts his race, and about 20 seconds in, he suddenly stops, falls to the floor, clutching his leg. And he's in absolute agony because he's tore his hamstring. But you have all these officials running around trying to help him, and he's like batting them away. He kind of struggles to his feet, and he hobbles on. He's determined to kind of keep going but at the expense, it's just incredible pain. You can see that he's really, really suffering. And all of a sudden, there's a figure from the stands that just jumps out of the crowd and bolts towards him, runs towards him. He's like moving the officials out of the way and runs and puts his arms around him and supports him. And it's his dad. His dad runs to hold him up. And together, they, they walk towards the finish line. He's wincing in pain all the while. They cross the line and the stadium goes mental. Everyone stands to their feet and cheers and claps. And it's an amazing moment. I love those kind of stories because I love the sheer determination and the grit that these athletes have. It's incredibly inspiring. They're 100% determined and focused. They're running for the prize. And this is where Paul's at. He's fixed on the prize, which is Jesus. Again, Paul chooses to surrender his freedom. He chooses to surrender the choice to live a life for himself, but chooses to run after Jesus. His call for us is to, as it says in the verse, run in a way as to get the prize. In other words, Paul is saying, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow Jesus, do it with everything that you have. Do it with everything you've got. In the same way that an athlete is fixed on one goal and is willing to surrender and make sacrifices in all sorts of areas, do the same. Don't waste your freedom by jogging or, or walking. Run well, chase after him with everything. That's Paul's call to us. If we do anything less than that with our walks with God, or our runs with God, we're cheating ourselves, actually, out of experiencing life in its fullness. Jesus says in Matthew 16, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. When we're willing to surrender our lives and our freedoms to chase after something that's greater, that's when we truly find life. 
I don't know if you've ever wanted something so bad that you'd be willing to kind of sacrifice anything to get it. For me, in 2003, that was the Nintendo GameCube. Very shallow, I know, but that's what I wanted. And it, I wanted it. It was very expensive. It was coming out in um, a few months' time. I decided if I want this, if I want to make this happen, I need to make some choices. So I chose to sell all of my old games, my old games console, and that was a, a bitter parting, let me tell you. There were, there were tears. Um, just to get some money together, and then I saved up all my Christmas and birthday money. Uh, I got a job as a paperboy, um, and like every, every day I'd be out delivering papers. And over time, eventually, it's launch day, and I've got enough money, and my dad is going out to get the GameCube for me. And I'm at school, and I'm super excited, and I get home, and there it is. And I open the box, and he's got the purple one for me. And I'm absolutely raging. Purple or black were the two choices the man gave him, and he said, my son will take purple. Uh, so there we go. I was a bit annoyed, but never mind. But even though it was purple, I booted it up, and it was incredible. I loved it. I was like, this was worth it. This was absolutely worth the wait. This was worth all the sacrifice and all the money. I don't regret it. I didn't regret it for a second. And Jesus tells a similar story of the kingdom of God being like a pearl of great price that a merchant discovered. And once he, dis once he saw it, he sold, sold everything he had to buy it. When we truly value something, we won't allow anything else to take its place. We're fixed on it. We're fixed on that goal. And we're willing to sacrifice the lesser things to make sure that we have it. And the question is, what do we value above all other things? What is our prize? It says in the Bible, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So we want to ask ourselves today, where have I invested my heart? Where is my treasure? Whatever we give our lives to, whatever we run towards and be sacrificial for, give our time and energy to, that's our prize. That's the object of our worship, actually. And as Christians, we have to look deep into our lives and ask ourselves, what is my prize? What is my life geared towards? Jesus, is it you? Am I chasing after you with everything I have? Paul is fixed on the prize. And so Paul says, though I am free, though I am saved and secure in Jesus already, I'm going to give up my freedom. I'm going to lay it down. He chooses to lay it down to take up the call of saving others and running after Jesus with everything. And it's our choice. Will we do the same? Why don't we stand?